Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. I'm Lindsay. And this is our review of Creature from the Black Lagoon, starring Richard Carlson, Julie Adams, Richard Denning, Antonio Moreno, Nestor Paivea, Whit Bissell, Ben Chapman, and Rick Al Browning. Directed by Jack Arnold, released in 1954, grows to $1.3 million at the box office. Jay, I have to ask, why are we doing this film? It's a good question. Back in Mark's Madness, earlier in, in 2020 here, we ran a little contest asking for, begging for, bribing people to write written reviews of the show on whatever podcast app you download it from. And if you had a suggestion for a review, throw it in the you know your written review and we would take it into consideration. And one of our wonderful listeners... That goes by the moniker Jeff Golfbloom, uh, suggested that we do Universal Monster movies. And I got to thinking, I was like, okay, why not do this one? I mean, it got two quickie sequels, one in 1955, one in 1956, but all the reboot attempts have absolutely failed thus far. But it is a movie that permeates throughout pop culture and, in fact, influenced a Best Picture winner some years later. So I thought, hey, you know, why not do Creature from the Black Lagoon? Now, have either of you seen this before we, we did this review? This is the first time I've ever seen it. Actually, I have seen this one before. I, and when I saw it, it was at the movie theater in 3D, no less, with the glasses and everything. So uh, I'm an old hat. Did, did you time travel for this? How did you catch this in 3D? <laughs> no, I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old going to the dollar movies with my dad. My dad saw that Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D was playing. It was like, well, we, we definitely have to see this because it was one of his favorite movies as a kid. Or one of the, the first movie I think he remembers like watching, either in the theater or on television. So so uh, he he was like, all right, we got to go watch this one just so it's a blast in the past for me. And you should see it anyway because it's one of the classic monsters. That is outstanding, man. I'm jealous now that you got to see this in theater. What was it like in 3D and everything? It was actually really cool in 3D. It was very... I think the movie, at least not to jump ahead too far ahead anyway, the underwater shots of this movie are beautiful. So in 3D, you it, it just adds mo- a lot of depth of field to what you're already looking at. Plus you get cool effects like when, you know, they shoot stuff at Gilman or whatever. It looks really cool in 3D. So it was it was surprisingly a lot of fun. Very cool. I This is one I know I saw as a kid, like on TBS or something. It would have been on at my grandmother's house. I've told a lot of stories about the random horror movies I'd watched with my grandmother. And this would have fallen in like the definite wheelhouse of what she would have let me watch at a young age. And so, I, yeah, I knew I'd seen it before. And I knew I'd seen a lot of things that ripped it off. And, you know, through the years, because how can you not for a movie that's been around this long? But I, I distinctly remember the thing about this one is that of all the Universal Monsters, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Wolfman, all that, this was the one that did always feel like, and here's Cousin Ralph that we just never talk about. He's in the pictures. He was at the wedding. But, you know, you, you don't really ever bring him up. And I... I've always wondered why not go back to this. And then as I was reading again, you know, getting into this, gosh, they, it's not like they haven't tried. They've tried in every decade since to get this off the ground. And one way or another, it has failed miserably all along the way. 
Except for, of course, the aforementioned Best Picture winner. Yeah, I guess we should call it out by name. Shape of Water? Yeah, that's... I mean, it's a take on this movie. It's a... Like, if you want to mix that movie with... I don't know. The, uh, what's a good... Uh, if you want to mix this with, like, the love scenes of uh, Terms of Endearment for some strange reason, then that's... There, there you go. That's Shape of Water. All I'm thinking of is, like... The bathtub in Bridges of Madison County, but it's a gill man. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, Lindsay, how, of, how did you avoid this one? You, you kind of like classic movies and stuff. So how did, how did you miss this one? I do. I love classic movies. I'm actually, I'm surprised that it, this hasn't um, landed on my TV at any point in time, especially with all of the really, really bad B-horror films that I've watched uh, circa mystery science theater but um there were a lot of mst moments in this movie that i appreciated but yeah i i really i don't know so i was excited i'm excited to to review it Uh, so so what you're saying to me Lindsay, is that you've seen revenge of the creature way more often than you've seen creature from the black lagoon accurate a lot of parallels though a lot of parallels i mean it is a sequel but you know (laughs) it's the same Rotten Gill Man costume. I mean, that, that was back when the sequel's pretty much just the same movie in a different place with cheaper <clears throat> actors. And that, that's what happened. Yeah. So I've seen both of the sequels to this. I, the third one I did look up before this review because I just wanted to you know flip through it and get a sense for it. I remember Revenge of the Creatures well. The the third one, The Creature Walks Among Us, I I will go ahead and put it on a limb now. I I don't recommend that as an experience for anybody. It's not really worth worth your time. Uh, but it is like a direct sequel of Revenge of the Creature, like moments after it picks up after that one. So if you just must know what happens after Revenge of the Creature, you can try The Creature Walks Among Us. But they're all basically the same, uh, which is amazing. So, but besides Shape of Water, and you know, we, we've kind of made fun of that order for what it is. Guillermo del Toro clearly a fan of this kind of thing, so this would be his take on it. But I am surprised again, legitimately, that they haven't found a way to redo this. They've redone Dracula so many times. Frankenstein got redone so many times that I think I, you know Aaron Eckhart played him at one point the last time I saw. And you know, like we we get all these different things, but we can't get enough other creature from the black lagoon and part of me wonders if it's because the whole subject matter and impetus of this idea behind this has been redone and taken and used in so many other movies that there's they just don't feel like there's anything fresh to go with i think it has to do with the fact that there's no way for them to really develop a really scary costume for the creature. I really feel like that would be difficult to do. And Dracula is always scary. Um, most monsters are. But there's it's something about webbed feet just isn't scary. And I don't think, I just don't think that, I feel like that's the big issue in my mind. That's what I'm going to say is the big issue. Well, it's the it's the Aquaman problem. How do you make Aquaman an interesting superhero? Right. When all he can do is like, his powers are extremely limited while he's on land. He just is a half Hawaiian looking guy. Uh, <laughs> you know, he can't fly or shoot lasers. Uh, he can't mesmer. Gilman can't mesmerize people or transform into a bat or even transform. If he could transform to like, I don't know, the Kraken from uh, the Ray Harryhausen movies, yes. he would be dope. Like if he could just enlarge himself or grow some extra arms, 
Um, but no, instead you've got Guillermo del Toro trying to figure out what would happen if uh, Kay and the monster got together, and uh, even he chickened out of showing us uh, Gilman's penis, which I think is what everyone was there to see. Do you like fish sticks? <laughs> <laughs> I knew one of you was going to do that. I just didn't know it was going to be Lindsay. <laughs> the, the fun thing about this whole idea, and you both have nailed it, is how do you make this look scary? And I, I'm glad you called it out, Rama, because looking at this thing's face the whole time, I was like, yes, it's the Kraken from Clash of the Titans. I just need Harry Hamlin and that Medusa thing to come out and, and uh, Bobo. Uh, the the uh, mechanical owl and uh, Burgess Meredith, and then I would be complete. It's Bubo, not Bobo. Bubo. Thank you. See, it's been a long Bobo. time. Bobo is uh, Bill Corbett's ape character from Mystery Science Theater three thousand that we've been talking about. <laughs> well, I knew it was Professor close. Bobo. He didn't he, he didn't get his PhD to be called just Bobo. So excuse me. <laughs> well, speaking of <laughs> speaking of Bobo and professors, I think it's time to give a plot summary. So Ron, please do the honors and tell us what creature of the black lagoon is all about. You got it. When a geologist, Dr. Maya finds fossilized evidence of a web clawed creature from a bygone era, he enlists the help of two young scientists, David and Kay working at his Institute to help him investigate. The expedition comes across a mysterious black lagoon and a gill man creature that inhabits it. David and the man funding the expedition, Dr. Williams, search underwater for the creature where they find it hiding in the seaweed. It does that a lot. Dr. Williams harpoons the creature, which retreats deeper. They eventually capture it and secure him in a makeshift water cage as they discuss what to do next. The creature escapes and harms another member of the ex- expedition before Kay throws a lantern lighting him on fire, driving it away. As the remaining group tries to escape, they discover the lagoon is blocked by logs. As they attempt to clear the path, the creature returns and kills Williams, who tried to go after it single-handedly. Dr. Maya, Dr. Maya, Captain Lucas, and David rescue Kay, and the creature is shot multiple times before it retreats back into the depths, and credits roll. That's a good tight plot summary there, and I have a lot of questions, so I hope y'all are ready for the uh, exam, as it were, in this movie. Well, it's a good type plot summary because you wrote it. If it was my plot summary, there would have been a lot more jokes, and it would have been like four pages long. It's uh, well, you know, brevity is the soul of wit. Or in this case, it's a seventy-one minute movie. It didn't deserve that kind of attention, uh, especially considering, as we've talked about, it hasn't been remade that many times. So I do want to talk about the thing. The very thing that just grabbed me from the beginning is we get like the Book of Genesis and Big Bang and Evolution mashed together here, and I gotta think in nineteen fifty-four that would have flipped some wigs. It to me, it just feels like padding. But they realized, oh, this movie's only like 65 minutes long. we got to add something to it. So let's use some stock footage of explosions and have a guy narrating over the top of it. Well, no, it was written in there, though. Like, I looked that up because I wondered the same thing. And they they wanted to start with this because they felt like they could cover all the bases. Because they wanted it to be able to appeal to what they considered to be what would be their massive audience at the time. Right? People that would go to church would know this stuff. And also to have quote, scientific accuracy involved in it. And I can only imagine that it's the same sort of motivation that made the people that made the Anaconda movie many decades later put that whole bit in there about how the Anacondas will regurgitate to kill again at the beginning of their movie to try to add some bit of scientific legitimacy to this. Yeah, I mean, it tied it all in. I liked, I thought that they did 
an epic job of it. I wasn't offended or, you know what I mean? Mm. I wouldn't have been offended by it like that. Mm. But I, it didn't turn me off in any way at the beginning of the movie as a first-time watcher. Um, but I, you know, I tied into the rest of the movie of, oh, they talk about evolution a lot throughout the whole <clears throat> film. Okay, um, since you mentioned Anaconda, Jay, and we're gonna we're jumping ahead a little bit here. Who's a less convincing scientist, Jennifer Lopez or uh, Julia Adams? <laughs> Jennifer Lopez by far. But since yeah. you since you brought it up, I now know where John Voight's entire performance comes from, and it comes from the guy that plays uh, Captain Lucas, uh, Nestor Pivea. Like the accent, everything. I promise y'all, go watch John Voight cut up Anaconda, and it's it's the same thing. He's doing the same. John Voight must have taken that for the paycheck and was like, "Yeah, I've watched Creature from the Black Lagoon. I'll just do that guy." The only problem is when Captain Lucas talks, I can understand it. When John Voight talks, I can't. But they both have lines about, like, the river will kill you a thousand ways. And, I mean, all that stuff. So, which is hilarious. So there's there's also a lot of other I mean, I could, I could sit here and run a laundry list of all the movies I think, you know, borrow something from this. But the ones that first came to mind, because of the kinds of stuff we've reviewed here on Filmstrip, uh, are Anaconda. And then Jaws 3, when they get, they trap the shark in the lagoon. All the lagoon talk and all the underwater stuff. When you've got a scientist named Kay swimming with her, you know, man friend who's supposed to be, you know, big, strong, smart guy, but he can't commit. I mean, it's the same thing that they do to the Dennis Quaid character in that movie. That's probably where, this is probably where they got that idea. Claire, the, you've <laughs> you already established in your introduction that this is a movie that's been ripped off oh, a yeah. lot. So it only makes sense that, you know, everybody's getting a piece of this. Can we talk about Kay, though, for a second? And Lizzie, I specifically want you to weigh in on this, okay? Because she's the only female in this entire cast. And they, like, when they introduce her, she's a scientist. She's an equal. But every time they have to do something, quote, scientific, she's left up top to, like, go swim in the lagoon or something. So I do have a few notes about that that I took down throughout the film. It's an interesting dichotomy because you're right. They do that a lot. Like, oh... We can't go there. We have a woman with us. And then I was like, oh, okay. And that's when, I mean, he was kind of being a dick, but um, Mark, I guess, right? That was the other, is that his name? Dr. Williams, yeah. The the, yeah. the scientist who's, who's overcome by greed all of a sudden. Yeah, but he was, even though, and I mean, maybe it was the greed driving him, but nonetheless, he was like, oh, well, she could take care of herself. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, she can. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't make the best decisions, but <laughs> yeah, she's, you know, still alive at the end of the movie. So that's something. I do feel like this is a trope from this era that has carried forward is that there's always one scientist or someone involved in funding the expedition who is their motivation is the money. Right. It's John Hammond in the Jurassic Park movies, which is really other people, but they lay a lot on him in the movie. Uh, you know, every other kind of movie like this, it's always the it's Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue Sea. You know, he's the guy that's got all the money, and then the sharks, you have to kill him, spoiler alert. So it's there's always that guy. And so I knew immediately, because I had no memory of how the movie was going to go, that when that guy started talking about how much money it took to run something like this, I'm like, that guy is so dead meat. If he's not, this movie will fail me. Well, it's the it's the uh, Tim Curry and Congo problem. Somebody's got to be responsible for this thing. And also, if your whole life was centered around your ability to beg the government for money to fund your research, if you could 
score a gill man and never have to write a grant proposal again, I think you would jump at it. True. Having written grant proposals, yes, I agree. <laughs> that's, that's not a good day. So what you're saying is, Jay, we need to go out and find the gill man. Or or the gill woman. Either one, I don't care. Gil, gill person. Gill person, yes. Let's be correct. Yes. Gill, gill creature. I'm down I mean, for, for it. For all we know, the gill creature uh, does lay eggs, so it may be... Um, it may re- reproduce asexually. I love Dr. Maya. I love his whole like grandfatherly presence and that he's got these two young people, gorgeous people working for him at the, you know, the Institute or whatever. And I love that. Like, again, for 1954, there's a lot of progressive stuff going on here. These two people are like clearly together. They live together or whatever, but they're not married. Cause he can't commit. And all Living this insane. I know. Right. After we've just quoted the Bible of all things. Yeah. So I, I don't, I thought that was fun though, because it, it, what it does is it, it forces you folks, if you don't watch movies from this era, you will paint with the broad brush that they were all these puritanical, you know, Quaker movies and stuff. And they weren't, they weren't at all. Like th- these movies are rife with this kind of stuff. And I think that's what makes it fun. And I will say this about Julie Adams. I don't know how believable she is as a scientist because they don't really give her anything scientific to do. But she is really good as like a horror scream queen, which is what her role is here, is to to be preyed upon by this creature and yell a lot. And she's pretty good at it. Oh, yeah. She has a great horror scream. And she does do it a lot. By the end of it, I should have kept count. But by the end of it, I was like, that's how she got cast. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's pretty, but also that's that's definitely her thing. That's her jam. Yeah, she she's got a top notch horror scream, and it, it's easy it's easy to see why this movie in and of itself is an extended metaphor for puberty. Cause, <laughs> oh, do you know, do tell because I did not are, pick are up you, that on this movie. Are you really not familiar with this? No, I am not. Please, I'm I'm not kidding. Well, okay, Gilman, uh, and we're gonna masculinize him because typically Gilman is seen as 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 an example of male puberty. Um, he he's a weird, awkward thing that feels gross and ugly, but all he wants is to be loved by the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. In this case, it may be the only woman he's ever seen, but, you know, he, he's got pretty good taste, I'll give him that. So the whole thing is his pursuit, his ungainly awkward pursuit and attempts to uh, woo or possess this woman. Oh, wow, I had never... Never heard it put that way, but well done. It's it's a really common theme, and uh, I recommend that you check out uh, Joe Bob Briggs's book, uh, Profoundly Disturbing, Shocking Movies That Changed History. And this, he talks about it extensively in this, uh, or he talks about this movie extensively in that. There's a whole chapter dedicated to it. I mean, I've heard that metaphor in like the werewolf stories and things like that. Like I totally get that, but I hadn't heard it for the Black Lagoon creature. But that okay, it works. Yeah, the were yeah. the werewolf part. Uh, the werewolf one is more about just the act of undergoing puberty. See also Ginger Snaps, which Jay needs to see because that is a great example of. That's another great movie because it deals with female uh, puberty from a female perspective. Um, I'm sure Lindsay's seen it. Nope. Add that to the list. (laughs) You definitely need to add Ginger Snaps to the list because, number one, it's great. Number two, it is incredibly Canadian. (laughs) I Um, I love Canadian movies and reality TV. And number three, it's like a feminist, uh, a teen feminist werewolf movie. 
De- Degrassi the werewolf. I didn't know I needed it in my life. Yeah, but. with like lycanthropy standing in for like you know <laughs> menstrual periods and stuff. Now that I actually I have heard that before, but but I, and actually the lycanthropy does have some menstruation like symptoms as she's as she after she gets infected and, and becomes the werewolf. I did. Which, why are, why are we talking to, to, to about be to be continued on a future film strip? We'll talk about that because because werewolves are a are a glaring hole in my horror watching. We've talked about this offline, Ron. That that's like the one I've seen maybe like two or three werewolf movies, but I've seen all this you know other stuff. So um, I feel like vampires are kind of like I know that I never see, need to see another one. But um, anyway, yeah, the, the werewolves would be the whole of this. But back to creatures from the Black Lagoon and their need to touch the most beautiful woman ever, um, or at least the most one he's ever seen. What I love are all the inserts of the of the creature's claw you know we saw it fossilized first and then we see it you know putting the claw on the sand and dragging it back and i love that we get that that sting score that uh herman stein wrote and then han salter and henry mancini added stuff to it it just repeats over and over and there's nothing that maybe dates this movie more for me than that score that is because jack arnold in interview said i wanted music that would keep people on the edge of their seat the whole time and i'm like well that's clearly the purpose of this music is to make you go dun 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 i mean it is that that trope i like the insert of the claw i think it's it's very classic you know to not show the creature until the end and i didn't think we were going to see the full creature as soon as we did i was expecting it to be like a big reveal at the end so i was a little surprised to see him that early um, it reminded me of, I don't know if you guys ever watched Doug, like the Nickelodeon cartoon, but there's an episode where he's really scared about going to watch the end of a movie because the monster is supposed to be really scary. And then the big reveal is that the monster really isn't. And that was clearly taken from from some version of this. But well, I think uh, I think you're onto something is the fact that they show us the monster <clears throat> so early and like full on and hats off to Rick Al Browning, who was the underwater version of the monster. There are no air tanks in that guys. He did four minute takes holding his breath in that thing, swimming in the tank doing that. That's impressive. It actually wasn't a tank. It was shot in an actual lagoon in central Florida. And I've been in that area and it's a beautiful area. Oh, now that I thought I thought the uh, close-up shots were were a tank, but oh, that's amazing that they were doing that in the wild. I mean, that's wow. Yeah, like a, a, a lot of the the stuff on the boat, I think, was shot at Universal, but the stuff, the wa- actual water, the underwater stuff, was shot uh, live in Florida. And the reason why he did four-minute takes is because he could hold his breath for five minutes, and that would give him a chance to <laughs> swim back up to the surface and breathe. One minute to survive in that 40-pound rubber suit. Hey, hats off, though, to Julie Adams. Though. She did all of her own stunts. She was doing all that water work, too. So, Did she do yeah, the water ballet dancing bit, too? I was she, wondering. It looked like a synchronized that. swimmer. She did all of that. The only thing yeah. that she didn't do was when he drags her underwater, finally. And it's that one time when he's taking her, that's a stunt person underwater. But everything on top is her. So they, they did pretty good with that. And the part where she's being carried through the grotto is also her. Yep. As she loved to tell people because the guy in the suit who played the monster on land couldn't see so he would just run her into the walls because he couldn't see the walls. So she just got beat all up from scraping on that rock. 
Yeah, that fake rock thing that they had set up there. That, you called it out, Ron, and you're absolutely right. The underwater sequences in this are, are incredible. I can only imagine what that would look like on a big screen and in 3D. I mean, they really do look good. And it's some of the best stuff in the movie. I know it lingers on it a little bit. Like when the two guys go diving with Williams and, and Davey go diving, they're just down there forever. But I, I kind of liked it. I dug it. Yeah, the music in that scene with the two guys made me feel more like they were going to go after each other versus just because of what led up to that point. I was like, oh, one of them's going to pull a knife on the other one or something. And I was less concerned about the monster coming up to them. But then nothing happened and... They got on a boat. <laughs> it is the dropped love triangle of the movie. Like, I think they are, we're supposed to believe that at one time Kay was involved with Mark and then dumped him for David and he's never really gotten over her or something. I don't, did either of you two get that? Yeah. It, well, I think he pursued her when she first started working for the Institute and, you know, you know, in, in true 1950s fashion when a woman says no she really means keep trying yeah i think too because she she mentions that he clearly put work first and money first about Mm -hmm. you know he was always chasing this next big thing and i think that that led me to believe that maybe at one point she was in fact interested in him and then he kind of just was more concerned with other things and she was not all about that she wants to be number one which is amazing that she winds up with David, who clearly cares for her, but will not commit. <laughs> so like, I don't, I don't know if he had a bad relationship once, what it was. I, again, that's all played off just so that we have some bearing of how all these people know each other and stuff. But I'm, I'm with you, Lindsay. I'm surprised those two guys didn't have more of a, a go after each other because they clearly have fundamental disagreements about what they should do once they spot the creature. I mean, Williams is all about, you know, put it on a spigot and hang it on the wall and we'll cut it apart while David is all about like, no, we have to take pictures of it and study it and be like a real scientist. Although Jay, to be fair, there's nothing more, there's no more scientific behavior than cutting a thing open to see what's inside. I mean, Think about biology class. I I agree. You're right. You're correct. But I think he's David's whole thing is we don't need to kill it until we at least know what it is. We if know if there's any more of them. Is this the only one? What if we kill the last one? All that kind of stuff. And it does leave a lot of questions. And it's all again to set up that all Williams cares about is and he's he's not wrong, by the way, that having this thing, whether it's dead or alive, is gold to us. It doesn't matter if, if it lives or not. It's going it's going to be worth something. And again, I don't have to write these darn grants anymore. So I'm going to I'm going to bring it in. And I love how they che- set up Chekhov's spear gun so you can shoot it into the mast once with that blast of compressed air because, uh, you know, that's coming back at some point. I'm just surprised that they blew that so early that he shoots the creature in the back like early on in the movie. Well, clearly this creature is is much tougher than they were expecting because it gets shot several times with bullets and with uh, spears from the spear gun. So set on fire. I mean, you know, and stabbed. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, stabbed and set on fire at least once, possibly no twice, because at the the tent, the two guys in the tent in the beginning of the movie at the camp, they also set him on fire. 
Yeah, clearly he's impervious to all of it, which is, you know, it does make him more menacing and scary. It's also, though, that they're uh, the problem with with it, if I have a problem with it, is that they play the monster too much. Like, is it a monster or is it just curious? You know, like there's there's part of like Peter Benchley always hated himself for writing Jaws after he bothered to learn how sharks work and that the shark's not like trying to kill everybody. It's just it looks like a seal. Go for it. You know, and since it doesn't have hands, it just does everything with its mouth. That's what we know about great white sharks. Sometimes that works out badly for people. Yes, but it's not a malicious intent. I don't get if the creature is legitimately trying to kill all the men folks so it can have the female in this or not that seems to be some of its motive but then at times it just seems to be like why are you in my lagoon yeah like he feels threatened because well a he's been shot at a number of times and b they're in his lagoon mm-hmm. but there are there were a couple lines where they talk about um i think k talks about how it doesn't matter what kind of creature it is, if you leave them alone, they're not going to bother you. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is going to be like a love square now. She's going to be into the monster, also knowing that Shape of Water is a movie. <laughs> I was like, just not sure where this is going to go, but I'm along for the ride. And then that's not the way it went, which is fine. But <laughs> Two points for love square. That's good. So I, I, I thought that was like a King Kong reference honestly you know that, that yeah PFA yeah. is is you know besmitten with the the ape as much as he is with her by the end of that. that that's a fair take on it yeah i could see that she's she's definitely you know she's definitely interested in the monster to to some degree and i think that it's also the fact that she's the only person on the boat who hasn't like taken a pot shot at the monster or tried to stab it or something makes her like the most approachable member of the boat. I mean, for all we know, he was trying to drag her off to be like, "Hey, man, can you get these guys to stop trying to shoot at me? I'm getting tired of this." <laughs> I love how he works at a deli in the Bronx now, too. That's awesome. <laughs> but they had that, they had that really sexy water dance moment. I mean, she didn't know they were having a sexy water dance, but. He was, you know, creepily swimming underneath her on his back. And I was like, okay, this is where this is going then. I mean, there's cool. that there's that whole scene with her legs dangling and he reaches up to grab her. And I'm like, man, Spielberg ripped that off too. I mean, that's that's straight out of Jaws. <laughs> that's, and I've read the Jaws book. They know how that goes down in the book. So it, it ain't no teasing. So that that was very much. But I, I, I did read a really cool thing that they talked about how the whole purpose of this movie is the scariest thing is to be in the water and not be able to see below you and something bump up against you and you don't know what it is yeah can we talk about that for a second because it bumped up against her and she didn't scream and she wasn't scared no no she dove down into the water to see what was there which for me is completely freaking insane like there's there's no reason for that a piece of seaweed could touch my foot and I would be out of that water even in the best situation because I'm not an open water swimming fan but that's just I'm like no no what are you doing don't go down there can Go we, to the boat. Can we talk about her whole decision, too? Again, they, they're collecting rocks to see if they can match it with where they found the original uh, piece of the monster, you know, the 
mummified or uh, fossilized monster. And so they're, they're going down below to do rock studies or something. And she's like, you know, I think I'll take a swim in this Amazon lagoon. Yeah. Like, do you not know about dangerous animals or parasites or worms? Like you are a scientist. There are so many things that could go wrong in this situation. I think that the reason that her being a scientist, the reason why she's like, oh, I bumped up something. Let's go see what it is. That seems to be the very, like, the most possible scientific choice to have made. True, but still, bad choices when you start swimming in dark places you don't know. I mean, that's just bonkers to me. I didn't say it was a smart <laughs> choice. I said it was the scientific choice. <laughs> true, Fair. true. I get Fair. I get you. But, no, I, I love that they do play with the scares of that. But I do think it's neat, though, that she does swim after it. And it's supposed to, I mean, again, the typical response we would expect would be for her to go, ah! which is what she does in the last 10 minutes of the movie. But at that point, she's like, what was that? Let me go look. You know, she's being much more Velma than Daphne at that point in the Scooby-Doo a thought of this. Yeah, like maybe I'll find some more of those weeds that my boyfriend gave me earlier. <laughs> yeah, he did just cut random seaweed up and bring it to you. Here you go, darling. Yeah. <laughs> oh, these are pretty. Yeah, I, I love how she says that line too. It's exactly like that. <laughs> so... But the whole the whole thing that they realize very quickly is okay. Yes, this we want to catch this creature. We've got to get this creature, but it's starting to create problems. I mean, it surfaces and attacks a deckhand and pulls him overboard. So we got we got to have some random killing now uh, because we need some deaths in this. And they decide the scientists, I say in quotes here, decide let's take a bunch of drugs and drop it in the water so it'll paralyze all the fish. And when that didn't work, they decided, let's sink up a little lower because maybe it'll paralyze this thing longer. Let's destroy the ecology of a place we've never been to before. I know. I was like, I have that note written. Oh, no, they're killing the fish or paralyzing them, which will kill them because they'll float to the top and then just die. But it's all for the cause. It seems like they, they they went a long way just to try to roofie the gill man. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's yep. exactly what they were doing. Because, I mean, it looks like bicarbonate soda. You throw it in water, and I'm like, it, yeah, they're, they're, that's a good way to call it. Rather, And it doesn't work. That's the other thing. We're like, man, this guy is, like, super tough. The drugs don't work. He can shoot him. You can stab him, light him on fire a couple times. It's, that's the strongest fish I've ever seen. Yeah, he's more like reptilian. He's like a weird cross because his face, they actually, they did a good job making his face look very fish-like and how he kind of opens his mouth to breathe. Yeah, it's, they did a nice job with that, but it was, I mean, still not the, the scariest monster in. I I can't help but, but wonder if we're not scared of of Gilman because we've seen like so many monsters. Like, is it possible to be scared of the Gilman after you've seen monster squad? No. Where he's got to like swim around in the sewers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, no. it's not, I should have worn my Stephen King rule shirt tonight for this recording, but <laughs> maybe that's what it is. I love monster squad so much, <laughs> but, but I will say that apparently one of the one of the uh, things that one of the stories that Rico Rico Browning liked to tell was that he had to get out he had to get out of the water at one point to go to the bathroom and he came out of the water right next to a mom and her daughter on the shore 
and they saw him coming out of the water, and they both shrieked and, and fled, like, <laughs> in, in terror. So maybe it's maybe it's just the thing that, that we're not the... We're a jaded audience for it. Oh, yeah. We, we, what have we always seen? I mean, the Kraken, for one thing. We've seen that. We've seen all the different alien and all this other stuff. I've seen Jaws, you know? I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to, to be scared by this thing, having seen all this other stuff. But, yes, I can imagine in 1954, people would lose their friggin' minds if they saw this thing coming out of the water. Especially just come out of the water unbeknownst. <laughs> yeah, at a, at, a, at a lagoon in Florida. But I will say that, um, like, we, we've talked about the, the, the hand, the reaching hand, the grasping hand. All those shots in the original 3D look great. See, I was going to ask, what are the 3D shots? I, I, the hand would be one of my guesses, and then when he starts throwing people at different times. Well, the, the, well, the whole thing is 3D. It's not the post-process 3D where it's just a few scenes. It was shot natively in 3D. Oh. So the whole movie has a little bit extra like depth of field and stuff as well as they could do in the 1950s. So a lot of it is just to give, um, to project, you know, Gilman out a little bit from the background to, and it, it, it adds just a little hint of like that third dimension. It adds a little bit more to the feeling of like you're in the bottom of a, of the pond and you can see, you know, you can't see the other side type of deal you know i think that's cool though and i don't know what they did whatever process <clears throat> they used to 3d film it or whatever it's clearly not the one they used for like jaws 3d and friday the 13th part 3 where when you just transfer it to the 2d format you just take the one half lens and cut it and throw it in there that's why it looks so grainy and crappy unless you've seen the remastered versions this looks amazing and i mean i watched just a a voodoo rental of it. It wasn't anything special. And it still looks really good for 1954. Like all the, all the pops and the grains I thought I would see, I didn't get. So it's really clear. Yeah. I watched this movie on my phone and it was much clearer than I expected it to be. So there's like two different times that he attempts to take Kay. One time we talked about where he kind of drags her underwater and he goes through his grotto or whatever. And, the, you know, they, they throw a net around him and attack him. And I love that their answer to that is let's build a cage out of bamboo that we just have laying around here. And that'll hold him. And the insert shots of the monster just sort of floating there, like looking into the void, waiting for something to happen. It's almost as as weird as... Like that part in Jason X, Ron, where Jason's just standing there in his prison and he's just sort of chained up. To to me, maybe I was projecting, but to me the monster looked like he was annoyed. Like he's just sitting in this thing. It's like, you really think you can hold me together with a bunch of crap you just duct taped together? Come on, I'm the gill man. I snapped I snapped people in half for fun. Did you see my arms? My arms are huge. I, I'm just going to... I'm just going to bulldoze my way out of this and, and wreck that guy smoking the pipe. <laughs> yeah, I survived a few harpoon shots. You think this cage is going to hold me down? I thought it it went to his... I didn't count. I don't know if they used the rule of three, if that's how many times they panned back to his face. But it, it felt like too many times, and it reminded me it felt... Uh, Monty Python-esque or Marx Brothers-esque, I guess I should say. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was very much like too many times of like, it, it, he's starting to rise up a little slower and a little bit more and a little bit more. And he finally puts his head through the thing. And I can only think that that was the actor going like, I just need to get a breath just one time through this thing so I could live. But I love how, yeah, they he waits for everybody to go below decks until uh, Pipe Smoker uh, with his rifle is going to sit out there. And he's like, well, you're you're chum. You're going down fast. And But Kay, again, thinking smart on her feet, grabs a lantern and throws it right at him and lights him on fire, uh, but also gets her friend totally toasted at the same time. I have to say that was a really good dude on fire sequence too. When that monster, when the monster goes up, the monster goes up. And one of the benefits, I guess, of the suit is that it was probably made out of asbestos or something. So you could just light it up because that's a big fireball and they're not like precious about not burning the guy's face. Like the whole thing, top half of that guy is just one big fireball until he dives in the water. And the fact that he dives into the water while on fire makes it even more dangerous because, you know, that's air. You're adding air to a fire that could have easily spread faster or it would have, it did spread faster because you can see the flames like increase down his body as he's diving into the water. And I thought as someone who loves a good guy on fire sequence, I I had a really, I was really impressed by that one because the added difficulty of that dive just, made it like chef's kiss beautiful to me i was too ron and i as a kid well high schooler middle schooler etc used to watch those videos of stunt guys and women doing all of these crazy things and how it worked when they got lit on fire and jumping into the into whatever body of water they were jumping into and i thought the same thing when I saw it. I was like, that was really good. And because it was shot when it was shot, you know, none of it's CGI. Like, that dude is on fire. Yeah, Ben Chapman took that one for the team. And all six, five of him jumping into that water with all that stuff on him. It it looks great. I mean, I've said it a hundred times. This movie looks amazing, even for its time. And I think because of that, we get so much of the stuff that we've seen in all the decades since. I mean, you can imagine every studio in Hollywood after this, Ron, going, we got a lot of guy on fire next time. You know, and look how many times that happened. I mean, it's we let everybody on fire at some point. I mean, that's just part of it. I mean, you know, if you're going to steal from a, a movie, you may as well steal from a classic monster movie. I mean, it, to me, a lot of this movie feels like they stole some of how they're shooting Gilman from the original Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. So, uh, something about the way they're using the, the claw hand and some about the way they shoot the Gilman in, like, Shadow uh, kind of made me think of Nosferatu. Yeah, and when he's going through the caves, especially. Yeah, I got a little bit of the Dracula off mm-hmm. of that, too. Which I mean, you know, crib from yourself. If you're, you know, you're universal and you're making these things, it makes total sense. And look, Jack Arnold worked for decades up through the 80s, you know, shooting things and did a lot of sci fi. Ended up doing a lot of TV later in his career. But I mean, he did The Incredible Shrinking Man and Tarantula and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he was a, a, a get as a director at this point and then would go on to have a great career. And you can see why. I mean, he clearly knows how to handle of the camera and how to keep the story moving. That's the thing about this, this movie 71 minutes long and it's really like 65. And I mean, it doesn't waste any time because 
once that creature escapes and is you know thrown on fire and all that, David's like, I'm done. It's time to go. Williams is like, no, we've got to stay or kill it, capture it, something. And he is clearly outvoted off the island here because they're going to go. I did get a huge kick out of the fact that that huge boat was stopped by what would I would consider to be like a good bass fishing trap. Not really like a lot of logs that were stopping the, uh, the exit way, but we got to have something, right? Yeah, I mean, I I buy it just because I I was just at the lake this weekend on a boat, and sometimes those things that look like little sticks are not little sticks and can really do some damage. So I get it. I did, however, I did really appreciate when uh when the captain pulled that knife out, just like a bamf, like no, I am the captain. <laughs> we're doing this thing. We're moving this, and we're getting. The- out <laughs> yeah I, I i appreciated that too because i was like man i i don't know a lot about science or anything but i do know better than to threaten a brazilian fishing boat captain <laughs> yeah, <'Cause>, yeah. <laughs> let me tell you those those dudes ain't gonna play around with you so i don't care how good you are with that uh, spear gun sonny and all that fancy equipment i will i will cut you and gut you <laughs> it's not a problem yeah he's me. gonna he looked yeah, like he'd done it before, oh, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that that's not that guy's first rodeo. No. And, and as far out as far out in the, in the jungle as they are, who knows how many bodies he's left behind. I, it's clear, too, that th- that would not be the first time that he had done something like that. And I don't think anybody else on that expedition would have would have said boo about it. They'd be like, oh, yeah, David just jumped off a cliff or something. You know, <laughs> Mark just, just went out on his Kill own. Me. So. Gilman got him. Yeah, right. Yeah, what Gilman? Yeah, right. So, I mean, yeah, you want to go see? Yeah, I know. I, lo- I love that. I know the captain rule, and I'm, I love that. It's, it was very much. Uh, I had a Paul Hogan moment too. It was like that's not a knife, Sonny. <laughs> this is a knife, and I'm the captain of the boat. So. I, I do love that they're trying to get to that. What I love is that they're, they're using like, you know, good block and tackle um, science to try to pull the logs out of the way and stuff. And the gill man is totally fucking with them the whole time. Like swimming up under there and undoing it. And like, no, back this way. Ah, I'm going to go to the other side now. I, did, I love like the playful way that it sort of just went around. and was like, nope, nope. And just kept untying the string. <laughs> yeah. I, as someone who is, is, is a uh, wildly unsuccessful that's wildly unsuccessful every time he's attempted to fish. That I know exactly what Gilman's doing because it has <laughs> happened to me dozens of times. I thought that too. I mean, it did feel like you they had gone fishing and just hooked a boot or, you know, the fish broke the line or something, you know. And I, can you imagine, because you don't know, they don't really specify how long it takes him to hook it the first time, but it feels like it had been a while and to have it just not go <laughs> was kind of heartbreaking. For I felt for him. I felt for the guy in that moment. And, and one of the reasons why I think the the, the log trap works well is because they've established that there's not a lot of clearance in this water. Because they had to all get out the boat hooks just to get them, just to yeah. make sure they didn't beach yeah. on their way through. So what I'm thinking is that Gilman knows where the choke point is, so he just put... That the tree is just enough in the way that they're they're stuck there. 
Do you think Mark Williams gets a redeeming moment when he goes after the thing at the end, or is he still under selfish motivations there? Because I'm kind of torn. I I don't know how to feel about the way that he dies when he goes after the Gill Man in the final. I don't know. I think he's a little crazed anyway, but I think this is – I mean, also, it's like um, – oh, I'm blanking, but – the movie where the surfer is he it's Keanu Reeves movie. Point and he break. Just wants, point yes, break. point break. Yeah. It's like you're crazed and this is the only thing you want and you know you might die, but you're gonna die trying to do something epic and I kind of feel like maybe that's where his head was at. I am an FBI Gilman. <laughs> <laughs> And then he, he he falls on his back and he just fires his spear gun into the air. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would watch that remake. Yes, I would totally go for that. Much better than that one that they did at Point Break. Yeesh. Anyway, so you talk about pointless. We, we need to do a retrospective of pointless remakes and that could lead off the month, I'll tell you. <laughs> so Williams goes down. Uh, everything's going to hell. Kay gets abducted yet again, taken to the cavern. This is presumably where she got her head hit multiple times. But I love how they all show up. The posse shows up, and all of a sudden, all these scientists, along with the captain, have decided that we're going to break out the Western guns, and we're going to go Tom Cody on this monster and blow it to hell. And they shoot him so many times before he's finally like, fine, I'm done, let me go. Well, I mean, they're they're clearly not in civilized territory uh, at this point, so you got to be prepared. Because I mean, one of the first things the captain talks about when they come back to camp and they see the dead guys is the captain's like, "That looks like a jaguar to me." So they clearly got to be prepared for every eventuality. I mean, no one's ever prepared for Gilman, but you know, the they they seem to do okay with their uh, Tom Mix rifles. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. I feel like maybe he should have died sooner. I'm not really sure how or why he's so strong. Maybe it's like he's got like the thick skin of an alligator or whatever. It's hard to pierce or a dragon. I don't know. Um, I cause It seemed like he died at the end. It seemed like he was going into like a death situation there. Except he sunk and didn't float, and that hung me up quite a bit. You see, that's why I read it as he just sunk away to the depths again to go back to the healing seaweed. Yeah, that makes more sense to me. Yeah, I I, I, th- I don't think they had intended on killing the Gill Man. I think they left it ambiguous so they could do a couple of, of mediocre sequels. And, and they pick up right from that. I mean, that every sequel ends with him getting shot, electrocuted, something, and then he slinks away, and he, he's never completely killed. I'll just tell you both that if you haven't seen those other ones recently or at all. That's what happens. He never is completely destroyed. And i, I got to tell you, there's something about that that I really like. Like, you can beat him, but you can't totally kill him. Like, Ron, if you go back, and, and when we were talking about the later Jason sequels in the Friday the 13th movies, like, it was just sort of neat to see how inventive they came up with a way to sort of put him down for that time. But you knew he wasn't dead. Like, he was never going to die, and that was sort of the point. And I like that. Yeah, I, I kind of appreciated that, too, because... Uh, at least from what little I remember of going to like 
reptile world in Florida that like alligators and crocodiles and critters like that are, are very hard to put down with bullets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you pretty much got to so hit them in the head, like at the right spot, or it's not going to happen. You know? Yeah, so I can definitely see Gilman like shaking off like you know a six pack of rifle shots. You think like he went back to the seaweed and was talking to his fresh friends like, y'all are never going to believe what happened to me the last two days. I saw this hot girl. I was swimming with her. I tried to touch her. And the next thing I know, all these dudes are herking spears at me. They light me on fire a couple times. They put me in a friggin' bamboo cage. John, you know how I ate that. And then they shot me. Yeah, yeah. We we, we heard it all before, Gilly. <laughs> if you're going to tell tales, man, you better make them believable. <laughs> Shut up, Brenda. You don't know my life. What kind of friends would he have? Like, that's my question. Does he speak fish fluently, do you think? He'd have to, right? Oh, yeah. He grew up there. I think he's got this telepathy thing, too. He could probably, you know, mm-hmm. call in his, his friend Cindy and say, I need the dolphins to come down and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll vouch for me. They know me. They know my truth. <laughs> he's just living his full truth. That's all he's that's doing. It. And people are trying to shoot him with harpoons. Right? That's not right. You guys are jerks. I'm going to go call my cousin Namor the Submariner. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for The Creature from the Black Lagoon? Lindsay. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was beautifully shot. I liked the score as a first-time <clears throat> watcher. I also appreciated the fact that it was short because you don't get short movies very often. I I think I would give it a medium popcorn with extra butter. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you on the medium popcorn, Lindsay. It's not it's not a great movie, uh, but a lot of that is because, as, as Jay has, has talked about, we've seen all these tricks in, in later movies, and we've seen these tricks done with better special effects. Uh, but there is something to it. the The underwater shots are gorgeous. I, I'm not. And um, if you get an opportunity to see it in 3D, I, I wholeheartedly recommend it because it's beautiful to watch. And uh, the monster actually looks a little bit better in 3D because you get a little bit more definition of his scales and such. He's not quite, he doesn't look like just like a guy in a, a you know, a suit that's been spray painted with abs on it. It looks, it has more shape, more texture. So I'm going to go with the medium popcorn with extra butter. It, you know, all that to say, it's still a whole lot of fun, and it's still a pretty cool looking monster. And I can see why he may be the the least of the Universal monsters, but uh, he's still I can still see why he would qualify because it, it, it is it's, it is a highly influential movie. Yeah, he is totally the fruit brute of the monster serials. All right. Only remembered by, you know, the deepest of cuts, right? You guys are absolutely right. Everything you said, I totally agree with. By itself, this is a medium popcorn movie, but a really enjoyable one. But because of the wide range of influence that this has had, I got to bump it up and give it a large. I really think this one is right for a good remake. And I think there is a way to do it and make it really scary. I, I, I think you got to get the right people involved with it. But this could work again. I think the temptation would be for this movie when they when they do eventually get around to redoing it, and they they will is it's going to be too long. Like the thing this movie is going for is that 70 minutes long. You got to do this remake in 90 minutes, do something fleet, get some smart people to write it 
and and you can have some real fun with it and there's plenty to pull from here but if by chance you've never seen this before folks look it up and watch it it is totally worth it and this one definitely stands up on the mantle with his universal monster brethren i, I think it deserves more love so i'm gonna give it a large popcorn because of its wide reach and the fact that it is just so darn enjoyable. And, of course, as always, it's a lot of fun to talk about it with you guys here on Film Strip as we kick off a real fun August. Uh, we're coming back next week, the three of us, to talk Howard the Duck. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, can't wait to get around to that. And then, Ron, we've got a little something we're doing for the end of summer here that you call Rock and Roll Dystopia. Tell folks what that's all about. Sure. Uh, well, it was that beautiful time in the 80s when rock and roll ruled. And society was crumbling, so you're uh, you're you're getting out of like uh, Jimmy Carter's malaise in the '70s. You're not quite at crack cocaine, but you're kind of somewhere in that juicy middle of where every large city is a decaying, decrepit, white flight riddled dystopian hellhole. So, uh, and it only comes with the finest of rock and roll music as a soundtrack. Absolutely. We're going to be doing Class of 1984, The Warriors, technically a 70s movie, but 79, we'll call that 80, and then Streets of Fire, which I can't wait to revisit and talk about. Uh, so much fun there. All that coming up in August. This has been a busy summer. We had a lot of cool stuff going, and then we're going to be in September, and then soon enough, y'all, it'll be Shocktober time. So who knows what'll come around on Film Strip as we get ready for the back end of the year. You can find all of our archives in your podcast feed or on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. Please leave us a positive a review wherever you find the show and if you drop a suggestion in there like our friend Jeff did here you, you might find it on the show one day who knows uh, follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Filmstrip Pod and search for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there we appreciate your support for Ron and Lindsay I'm Jay thank you for listening to Filmstrip thank you for listening to Filmstrip you can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.